Time for Take 10. We thank you very much for joining us. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here along with Dr. Jamie Heisman. Dr. Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, an expert on addictions and caregiving as well. And Carol, one of the things we want to talk about is a really sad, sorry part about, uh, if you will, the backstory with COVID-19, and that's a violence increase we're seeing across this country. That's right. When you read the news, um, I think there was recently an incident at a Burger King where the line was going too slow and somebody got shot. We read about increases in domestic violence. Um, And so I'm curious about this increase in violence during this period of COVID. Is there a relationship, Jamie, between what we're seeing in increased violence and something that's going on with COVID? Oh, without a doubt, Carol. I mean, this is really uh, a boiler. I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is, how do I say this? This is like, yeah, it's like water boiling over as we speak because COVID itself has exacerbated our own emotions and realizing, and we've done this often, you've heard me, the more, you know, out of control we are in our minds, the more controlling we get. So COVID and even the civil rights issues that, that are happening in this country and chaos in general, will always drive us to become, if we're not taking care of ourselves, to become much more controlling. And I had a conversation about this because this is really, this topic, about two public health crises colliding, okay? Because violence has always been a huge issue in our society. Gun violence, I mean, you're in Texas and I'm in Florida, so we can imagine that the gun violence here is off the scope. And so, well, I was having a conversation with my friend. I said, he says, I'm going out to get a gun. I said, are you kidding and millions of Americans are going out to, to buy guns today in this pandemic, and they, they have the illusion they're buying some safety, right? But really, what they're doing is exposing themselves and their families to higher risks of suicide and homicide and unintentional shootings and, and, and partner violence just by having them around in this difficult time. So what do we do if a family member, we notice one of our own family members, um, or we're feeling more violent? But this is uh, critical for us now to de-escalate, okay? When I used to run psych hospitals, and uh, we, we would come into them years ago, like the, you know, one floor of the cuckoo's nest, and there'd be people that, in, 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 that were being restrained, physically restrained. Now is the time, and I, actually, I won't be involved with that. We have to get staff to de-escalate and not ever restrain again. So we have to learn the language of de-escalation. We have to learn the language of how do we now take somebody and really calm them down. If it's a family member of ours, and they're literally out of control, you know, how do we talk to our other family members about what we see in our gut, in our gut? How do we tell them that we're seeing something about to happen that shouldn't be happening and get around the whole family and talk about openly issues of risk factors for homicide, for suicide, for somebody really breaking down and, and need possibly for a family to do a loving intervention. Well, how do you do that? Well, a family-loving intervention, you do need a third party, Ron. And I think that the family is the only ones that can take the temperature. Uh, nobody else is even close. I know we look at all these mass shootings that are tragic happening in the country, and it's so hard for anybody to get their finger on it unless you're a family member. So I think the family, whoever that family member is, uh, who has any clarity, who is trusted in some way, who is understood in some way that's different than being caught up in drinking the, the Kool-Aid, has to be listened to. And then you have to get a third party engaged. And so that third party will help that family member put the other family members together and literally plan out a way to sit down with their loved ones and see how can we alleviate the stress? How can we alleviate the anxiety? 
And how can we take the next steps to assist this person before they escalate further? If you take a look at uh, the factors that may lead to domestic violence and uh, uh, the head of the Family Violence Prevention Services here in San Antonio, Marta Belias, will tell you that when someone loses a job, uh, when they feel uh, demasculated, when they uh, have no hope, no future, they will often turn on their family uh, and blame the spouse. The vast majority of violent acts committed by men against women. Well, we have millions of people who are now unemployed, millions of those people who are about to lose uh, the minimal amount uh, of uh, unemployment insurance that they had, 600 a week, not a lot of money, gone. You can predict that a, a, a huge increase in violence will follow. Without a doubt. You know, domestic abuse has increased 400%, and that's minimal. That's only reported. And so, Ron, what you're saying is something now that we're finally finding out during COVID. The mental health matters, okay? People have personality issues, whether they're personality disorders or personality issues. And when they get triggered, so I hate to use that word because, unfortunately, that is the word, but when they get queued up or triggered, they then are the ones to really have no plan of action, no self-esteem, no identity, except to do black and white gestures. And so personality disorders and personality issues are the ones behind these stories that we read about, that we don't ask about, but that we're aghast at. So we have to become much more mindful here. And that's where the family has to measure exactly what's going on within their family and be able to reach out for help. So what if I'm the one that's feeling violent? I'm the caregiver. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling like I am about to just lose it. What do I need to do if I'm the problem? I would take you aside as a friend, and I would take you as a colleague, and I would take you as a family member and ask you, who do you trust, Carol? Is there anybody at all that you trust in this world? Do you trust your priest? Do you trust your your husband? Do you trust your, your cousin, your aunt? Who would be that person? Because whoever that is, that person, and whatever the answer is to that question, that in and of itself is the first thing you have to do. You have to reach out for help and to a loved one, okay? And then the loved one hopefully to really pad them to hopefully a therapist or an interventionist or a group or a yoga uh, center or somewhere where you now have social regulation. You're not stuck into fight, flight, or freeze. Well, if you take a look at... Uh, And Carol brings up a very good point because we think of domestic violence as husband, wife, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, but caregiver, caretaker, care recipient, Mm -hmm. also a violent potential there. And that's what Carol's talking about. Pretty frightening. I can talk better about than Carol. Carol's developed programming over there, and I'd love for you to take this on because you're 100% right, Ron. What we're doing now, the caregiver, you know, you're in abusive situations and you almost can't help it. And what Carol's describing is a caregiver out of control. What do I do? But Carol, you you need programs like this, so I'll leave it to you. Well, you know, I think the most important thing is reflects what you've been talking about is do something. If you are feeling violent, if you feel at risk of losing control, reaching out to a trusted person. If you see it within your family, convening a family, getting some outside help. Um, Violence, um, you know, that's left to just fester is only going to get worse. Um, And if someone is triggered, then, you know, it's too late at some point. So taking an action. Let's normalize it for the listening audience. I'm so sorry, Carol, cut you off. Let's normalize it for them that 
it's okay to feel that way because that's what's happening in COVID. Don't feel yourself as a monster. Don't feel yourself as something aberrant or pathological. Just feel this is normal, and then you can reach out. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Carol. No, that's great. No, I think that's great. I think that's great. I think that's an important point because caregivers in particular always feel like there's something wrong with me. I'm feeling angry. I want to hit the person that I'm supposed to be taking care of. Um, and those are that happens even without COVID. There's one other piece we haven't talked about, and it's the silent sufferer. In the past, when school's in session, brick and mortar's up, no COVID, one of the major reporting factors for abuse among children are teachers, counselors, coaches. They're not in that mix anymore. So you have, according uh, to folks who work in this field now, uh, the potential for a huge number of kids who are being abused, but nobody knows. It may take a neighbor. It may take a delivery man. It may take uh, somebody who observes what is going on to make a report because these kids are suffering. You, you described it perfectly, Ron. And so, again, if we're vigilant as a family member to try to get somebody to reach out for help, if you're a neighbor, you see this because you're right. The coaches and teachers, if you're coming home and bringing this energy home, it's got to go somewhere if there's not somewhere therapeutic, if there's not a group, if there's not a person, if there's not you know a therapist. It has to be somewhere. So, you know, be vigilant and watch. And it, the person with no voice, the child with no voice, make sure you watch for them. Bingo. Stop you right there. Thank you. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. Listen to Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer.